The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Robert Schuler. He is a student-turned-activist. He's on a leave of absence presently from Cornell University, where he was an undergraduate student in the College of Arts and Science. He recently wrote a piece for Bioscience Resource Project about his experience at Cornell, where he became aware of GMO agriculture promotion, and he became concerned about that. So I thought it would be interesting to interview Mr. Schuler and get his perspective as a student about what he was learning, or more correctly, what he wasn't learning at Cornell University. So welcome, Mr. Schuler. It's a pleasure to have you with me. Linda, thank you so much for having me. Okay, so tell me a little bit about how you got to Cornell. I understand you're originally from California, and you had a football coach and a physics teacher who were very instrumental in the course of your study. How did that go? Yes, so I've always been kind of a math nerd, so to speak. And when I got to high school, I also thought it would be fun to play on the football team. So that set the context for my high school experience. And I had a very influential AP physics teacher my sophomore year uh, named Mr. Jones. And I struggled a lot in the beginning of that class, and he really helped me kind of see the broader picture of, of science and logic and understanding. And then it just clicked one day, and from there I just really fell in love with science and math and the whole field. And he would always really express to us how important our generation was for mitigating climate change and affecting action and policy in the real world because he was he was very tired of people ignoring about climate change in particular. Mm-hmm. So that was very influential. And then uh, my football coach pretty much forced me to apply to the Ivy League schools, and I didn't really want to. I was, I'm from California in San Jose, and I wanted to go to Berkeley, and he insisted that I apply to all these Ivy League schools. And I did to humor him, and I ended up getting into Cornell and Berkeley, and really wanted to go to Berkeley because it was so close to home, and I just really loved the atmosphere there. And uh, they ended up giving me very little financial aid. And it was right at the same year when Cornell decided to give 100% need-based financial aid, which, you know, my mom was a single mom at the time, and it just made it such a no-brainer. And that's at the context for me going to Cornell. And so how did you decide what your major was going to be? Well, to be honest, it's I had no idea going in, even though I was, you know, math was essentially what got me in there, I believe, math and physics. And I really had no idea what I wanted to do. And I started to study at Cornell and just doing basic requirements and quite immediately just was not very happy being an undergrad student and didn't really feel at home in Ithaca at Cornell campus and just was really going through the motions. And I kind of just chose mathematics by default and was pretty uninspired at that point. I don't really know what was going on. And I also started doing, I'm a big music fan as well, and I've been playing guitar a long time. 
And so I started kind of going down a math and a music route at the same time. And so you sat in on a course entitled The GMO Debate. What led you to that? Why were you curious about that? Yes. Well, just to explain it further, after two years of me being at Cornell, it was pretty much a downhill slope that whole time. And I just I left pretty despondent and took a leave of absence and uh, left for several years, actually, for more than I was at Cornell. And I basically was looking to recover, recover my health, my mental health, my physical health, and immediately became obsessed with nutrition and agriculture and had the chance to study with, with a man and a doctor named Gabriel Cousins in Arizona, who was a very big picture kind of guy. And he basically had, he was healing people at his retreat center with whole vegan plant fruits and also put tremendous focus on agroecology. So he had a veganic garden and he was healing people nutritionally. And the results I saw in both of those fields was tremendous and it totally set me on a different path in life. And I kind of kicked around that realm for a while. I stayed there for about a year and then ended up leaving back home to California doing a couple of other things. And then, I don't know, just decided to come back to Cornell for no real reason. I never intended to finish, to be honest, when I left in the first place. Uh, that's a different story. But, uh, yeah, just decided to come back to Cornell, re-enrolled uh, as a math student, and sat in on the, the GMO debate class, which is what they call a university course at Cornell, which is, means it's multidisciplinary, science, policy, government, etc. It had four professors teaching the class, a lot of other professors sitting in, tons of guest speakers, and it was a very large class, too. It was a you know, several, I, I would guess over 100 students and several other people that were in the course just kind of checking it out. And I spent so much time uh, studying GMOs in my time practicing agroecology and nutrition that I was kind of primed to figure out what, I, I guess I really wanted to know what Cornell said about GMOs and mm-hmm. what I learned really completely floored me. What did you learn in the course? Well, I it's not what I learned about GMOs. It's what I learned about Cornell, I guess you could say. I quickly realized that it was a 100% pro-GMO course, and there was virtually little critique of GMO agriculture in any sense of the word, including every guest speaker, every professor, and I was pretty much the only one raising my hand, questioning these claims, in front of everyone, and it was it took a little bit of nerve to do that, but I just I couldn't let it go unchecked. And what kind of response did you get, both from your fellow students and the professors, when you did raise your hand and ask critical questions about what you were hearing? Well, from my professors, I was largely ignored. You know, it's a science-based class, or so I thought. So I would bring up, I would bring up a scientific study or, or a meta-analysis or an independent scientist's analysis of GMOs, and, and it was consistently just marginalized and pushed down to the side and, and just not treated with respect. In, in other words, not a real debate at all. And as for the other students, I know a lot of the students in that class were basically being groomed for biotechnology and big agriculture. You know, Cornell's a big industrial agriculture school with Monsanto and DuPont, et cetera, connected to them. And so many of them just thought I was a crazy anti-GMO person with no science to back up my claims. And so I was just largely ignored, largely marginalized, and it really, it was a struggle. 
Yeah, it's always hard for people to buck the system. And it really takes a brave soul to be the lone person to raise your hand and say, wait, I think differently than the rest of you in this room. And to raise those questions and face the sometimes what happens is maybe you're, as you said, you were discredited. That's hard. But you're not taking this experience lying down. You're going to have your own GMO course. Yes. It's really interesting. It was, it was definitely nerve-wracking at first, calling out the status quo and what I felt was massive misinformation presented in that course. And But, you know, at, after a while, it, it became, I kind of became pumped up about it. I became excited about showing a different perspective and proving people wrong about certain issues. And it just became so, I just kept waiting for any balance in the course, and it never happened. And at the same time, I was making great connections with independent scientists and other students and activists and just really decided that it would be perfect timing to host our own independent GMO course at Cornell, which to my knowledge has never been done before. And so Cornell University is allowing you to use their facilities to host this course? Well, we're not being fully... Well, as you know, our article got published, and I personally helped throw a couple events last semester uh, before the summer, not about GMOs, but about nutrition, where we had T. Colin Campbell come and speak, uh, Professor T. Colin Campbell, who's Professor Emeritus at Cornell, Nutritional Biochemistry, and Cornell gladly let us use the facilities. It's pretty easy as a student or anyone to just email someone that runs a building and, and be, hey, I want to I wanna use this building this night. So we're, we're going to take that same approach. And every Wednesday night, around 7 p.m., from September 7th to November 16th, we're planning on hosting this course. I wouldn't be surprised if Cornell didn't give us the room or, or the space to do this after they learn what's going on. And in that case, we have plenty of backups. We have places right next to campus. We have places downtown. We have uh, various locations that, that are happy to hold this discourse. And you're going to provide the speakers... I don't know if whether you're going to publish a transcript of what they say or are you going to have it live streamed so the rest of the public that is interested can hear some of the lectures? Oh, yes. I, that's My intention is for the whole global community to be able to tune into this project. And it might be live streamed. We're trying to figure that out. But mm -hmm. at the worst case scenario, we're going to re professionally record every lecture and Q&A session and put it online the next day or that weekend. Excellent. And, uh, and there's, it's, there's going to be much more material in addition to the Wednesday night lectures. We're gonna, I'm going to personally interview every expert that comes on board one-on-one -on -one in a non-lecture setting. And we're, we also have tons of people throughout the Internet stratosphere that's coming right. through the woodwork that really wants to speak on this, farmers, activists, other independent scientists. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, we'll make sure to provide the link to those lectures so that our listening audience can also hear what you've provided. I, I think right. it's just terrific that you're providing this outlet for people to learn more or beyond what we're told in a university setting. And I think what is so disturbing for me, at least because I had been affiliated with a land-grant university, the University of Missouri, mm. is that the mission of the land-grant is really to provide broad outreach and critical thinking and 
to me, you know, science is all about questioning. And when I hear university professors disallow questioning, like, you know, this, we've drawn the conclusions, we know already this is the way we're going to proceed to the future. This is modern agriculture, for example. I think we need to have room for questioning if we truly are scientific. Absolutely. And I have some comments on that, actually, about land-grant universities in particular, because I I started to study this once I, I came to the same conclusion as you, essentially. And Cornell is actually essentially the, the first land-grant institution in America. It set the tone for the rest of them. And there's a really fascinating history with this, actually. Basically, Ezra Cornell, who founded Western Union, became very wealthy with that, and then founded Cornell University in the pretty much in the height of the Civil War, in the end of the Civil War is when Cornell really became an idea for him. He approached Abraham Lincoln, who was a personal friend of his, and it's only because Lincoln signed, um, I need to make sure my history is accurate, but Lincoln basically signed the land-grant bill that allowed Cornell to be a land-grant institution with the far-reaching vision of, of having agriculture discourse in the university setting you know, and, and scientific research. And, and, and so the, the, the foundations of Langrand University are very, very, very pure, and they, they have a, they're very good intentions for this. And it's, I think since the biotech industry has taken hold of everything, it's really morphed into a, a nightmare of a monster of what it, it, it once was. And I would wonder what Ezra Cornell and Abraham Lincoln think of what Cornell is doing today. Yeah. Well, let me take one moment and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Mr. Robert Schuler. He is a Cornell University undergraduate student currently on a leave of absence, but he was critically thinking about some of the information that he was receiving at Cornell about GMO agriculture. And he is standing up and saying, wait, there is something else that we need to know. We need to be more cognizant of agroecological principles, and you are providing an evidence-based GMO course with a different slate of speakers. Now, I want to go back to something that you stated in the excellent piece that you wrote, and it has to do with your vision of nutrition and agriculture, and you write that agriculture is the precursor to nutrition, and I thought that was so succinctly stated and I want to know how you interacted with Dr. Campbell and what you learned about diet and how it made you feel better when you went to the plant-based diet. Yes. Well, it's really interesting. I, I met Dr. Campbell when I came back to Cornell after I had uh, been on a plant-based diet for several years at that point, about five or six years. But I, I first heard of him right before I left Cornell and read the China study and his other work and uh, led this whole rabbit hole of plant-based diet. And basically, it was really studying with Gabriel Cousins, who really, as I mentioned, made both those issues tied at the hip with agriculture and nutrition, and that you cannot separate one from the other. And especially from a broad, global, epidemiological perspective, where you know, if we decide to eat tons of animal products, we're going to have massive effects on the environment, right? Mm-hmm. If we and, and our own health, of course. If we eat a plant-based diet, we're going to free up vast amounts of land and resources that would otherwise basically go to feeding animals. And, you know, here we're talking about world hunger. We're talking about food insecurity, these critically important issues. And 
are so connected to our diet. And it goes in reverse, too, how industrial agriculture, as we know, is is arguably highly toxic to the environment and to human health. So a shift to agroecological, sustainable, organic methods is likely going to have tremendous impact on chronic disease, Mm -hmm. really whether we go plant-based or not. I'm a big fan of plant-based diet and espouse that as much as I can. And that's another, that's really where I want to take my mission in life mm-hmm. is, you know, I don't want to talk about GMOs all the time. I think it needs to be talked about, but I want to take it further. Right. And yeah, so it really goes both directions. You know, your your diet affects the planet and the way we grow food on the planet affects our livelihood Absolutely. individually and collectively. Yeah. And I always try to help people understand that each application of genetic engineering really needs to be taken individually, you know, and assessed individually. But by far the largest application of GE technology has been to engineer crops so that they're resistant to herbicides. And for somebody who lives in the Midwest, I live on the Mississippi, live in the Mississippi River watershed. You know, we have herbicides in our rainwater. We have herbicides in every one of our streams and rivers. And if we look at the dead zone, and as you mentioned, the big picture of climate change and young people moving ahead, what kind of planet are we going to have? Then I think we absolutely need to be focused on agriculture and primarily promoting these agroecological farming methods. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what we mean when we talk about agroecology? Well, in contrast to industrial agriculture, which you talk about, which is giant monocultures of what is now GMO corn and soy, which is either Roundup Ready, which withstands Roundup and glyphosate, or BT, which is BT toxin is genetically engineered into each cell of the plant or to be produced in each cell of the plant. Agroecology is really much more diversified, decentralized system of growing food that is, at first, it's much, much safer. It's oftentimes low or no input and no big chemical seed companies or or chemical manufacturing companies. It empowers farmers. It builds communities. It fosters biodiversity. As we know, we have a huge pollinator problem in our country, monarch butterflies, bees, birds, all affected by glyphosate and Bt. And we need to look at the whole thing in context, especially in the third world, where GMOs are so heavily promoted as the solution by technocrats, by the Bill Gates of the world, and and Cornell, and the Alliance for Science, which is, I talk about in my article, which is Cornell's pro-GMO group. And it's hard for people to get. It seems like a forward step. It seems like a advancement of technology or agriculture. And in reality, if we just go agroecological, which is already taking the third world by storm in a grassroots movement, agroecology is definitely the way, to go for, the way to go for third world because it empowers these communities. It keeps the economic benefits within the communities and not with giant corporations. And it's just so much safer. There's a huge problem with industrial agriculture harming people in Brazil and Argentina and and India and all these different examples, and they're consistently ignored by the people who espouse those forms of agriculture. Mm -hmm. So people just aren't really aware of the vast amount of of alternatives. They're really, even that word, I don't even like that word, alternatives. It really should be our primary focus of just agro-ecological methods. And um, interestingly enough, there's, you know, Cornell is not all bad. There's so many great things going on at Cornell. I don't want to give that impression to sure. you. 
yeah. And there's a, a agroecological technique called SRI, which stands for System of Rice Intensification. Oh, and yeah. it's zero GMO, no chemical input, vastly lower water usage, lower land usage, and it, in many cases, it can double or triple yields for third world rice farmers. And it's so simple and it's just so easy to understand that people make videos on this and it's, like I said, it's, it's catching like a wildfire in the third world and it doesn't need promotion from Monsanto or DuPont or anything. It, it works so well. Farmers are able to build their own houses now. They're able to save money rather than be in constant debt. And I'm thinking, why don't we give, you know, millions of dollars to this project? Why, why don't we promote this on, in the Alliance for Science? Why isn't this front and center of the debate on agriculture in the third world? And it's, unfortunately, it's marginalized at Cornell because in favor of biotechnology and GMOs. Right. And I'm trying to reverse that trend. Well, I think it's interesting that you mentioned in your article that you say perhaps saddest of all was the inclusion of several visiting African agricultural academics. And they were brought here by the Cornell Alliance for Science and that this organization was completely funded by a $5.6 million grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and appears to espouse only pro-GMO rhetoric. I think we have to ask, who is funding the messages that we hear about agriculture? Yes, and I'm not going to make any claims about Bill Gates or Cornell or anything, but Bill Gates is a known investor in Monsanto and other biotechnology companies. He's a heavy promoter of GMOs in the third world. He's literally quoted as saying, I'm biased towards GMOs. And yeah, he, he basically gave Cornell $5.6 million to fund the Alliance for Science. And yeah, they're, they're really pushing the GMO thing hard in India, Bangladesh, Philippines, and Africa. And there's several experts that have written at length on how terrible of an idea it would be to have GMO agriculture take over Africa. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there were students in this GMO course, and there were these visiting African academic fellows. And it was really interesting to see this kind of display where there was no debate on GMOs. It was all pro-GMO. No one questioned anything. And I like to think that I played a role in a lot of these African academics questioning what Cornell was telling them. I, I hope that I put a little virus in their brain or, yeah. or something. But but yeah, it, it was shocking. And on that note, agroecology is doing tremendously in Africa, and it needs to be promoted more. I want to know more about what drove you to stand up and question what seemed to be taken in and accepted wholeheartedly by the rest of the room. It takes a very brave person to be able to do that. What do you think it was that inspired you to stand up and say, I see things differently? Well, since I was younger, I started to understand how all sorts of industry was conflicting with scientific truth whether it comes to, you know, particularly health and nutrition is a big one, where there's so much, you know, chronic disease today that could be mitigated overnight if we didn't have such a strong voice, you know, telling us that, that things are safe, you know, that, that factory farm animal products are safe or that GMOs are safe. And it did take a lot of bravery, I feel, and, it, you know, I, I almost didn't do it, to be honest. But I realized that I had worked so hard my whole school career, all throughout high school, 
to get good grades and to pass all these tests and jump through these hoops. And to go to a place like Cornell and my whole family was absolutely, they were so amazed that I got into a school like that and were just so grateful. And then to to learn that they were teaching blatant propaganda about GMOs in particular. And it doesn't stop there. There's other things too that, it's another story. But I, I just couldn't, I thought of how I could affect just scores of generations of future Cornell students who would at least begin to critically think about these issues as I did. And it became much, much more important to me than just going through the motions, getting my degree, and going and getting a job. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is, this is what I've chose, and it's, or I guess it chose me, really, I should say. Yeah. Okay, now you've got a website that I want to let our listeners know about. It's gmowtf.com, and I'm assuming that that will be where we can listen to some of the guests that you have coming in. Yes, we'll be fully underway, gmowtf.com, and there you'll find – I basically have a plan for Cornell, for the Cornell community that I put out there, and – it's all documented on there. It's all, everything will be archived online for free forever. It will be uh, continually updated. Uh, if any factually incorrect information that we put out there comes out, we will we will rectify that and change it. And uh, yeah, it's just total transparency, totally independent, no sponsorship from any organization or biotech or anything. Uh, completely community funded and. Yeah, really, it's it's. I think it's going to take hold and be a great resource for years to come. You know, one of the things that you say, Robert, is that our universities have become extensions of corporate power at the cost of our health, our livelihoods, and ecology. And I wonder, what is it going to take to turn that tide? That's a great question. That's a question that I'm still answering myself, and I think we, we're all kind of collectively asking this question and how we're going to answer it. And my article got published on the Bioscience Research Project and Independent Science News and GMWatch.org, and I knew it would be popular, but it would completely floored me how, how much outpouring I've gotten, just how necessary this is and how much support this kind of call to action has. And so that's been really inspiring. But mm-hmm. I I feel it really has to start with the students, because I can't tell you how many Cornell students, undergraduates that I run into, that literally tell me all GMOs are safe. Science says GMOs are safe because my professors told me at Cornell, <laughs> and that's just not okay, and that needs to stop. So my main focus is on getting the younger generation to to take hold of this issue and inspire inspire them to you know if I leave Cornell or Ithaca, I want this to continue while I'm gone. And I have no desire to argue with academics that have been in the industry for 30 years, you know, and butt heads with them. I really just want to educate and open the debate for the younger generation so that they can critically think as they move forward in their career and their entire life beyond. I commend you for this work. Thank you. Our time is up, but I want to thank you very much for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And again, Mr. Robert Schuler is at the heart of waking up, truly. And I will post his article that appeared in Independent Science News 
with this interview. And then we also want to direct your attention to GMOWTF.com. We'll provide a link for that as well. Thank you, Mr. Schuler, for helping us think more critically and for your time today. My pleasure, Melinda. Thank you so much for having me.